Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. The mindfulness world, or the meditation world, whatever you want to call it, is is a pretty small place. And uh, I would say Soren Gordhammer uh, occupies a pretty large position in this world because he started this thing called Wisdom 2.0, which has become the largest and loudest gathering of mindfulness and meditation types on Earth. It's been featured on 60 Minutes. It's been written about all over the place. And you would think that a gathering like this would be um, a reasonably um, uncontroversial affair. But as it turns out, actually, there are there's plenty of controversy around it for lots of reasons, interesting reasons you will hear about soon in this conversation. Uh, in fact, they actually there was actually a, a protest on stage one year. Uh, so Soren is interesting because of the place he occupies in this world. Also, his backstory, uh, as is the case with pretty much all of our guests we've been lucky in this way thus far, is really, really interesting. So here he is. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Well, thank you for doing this. <laughs> You're welcome. It's nice to see you. <laughs> yeah, likewise. I forgot how tall you are. How tall yeah, are you? Uh, almost 6'4". Wow. Like six three and three fourths. I'd be such a jerk if I was that tall. <laughs> My dad's six six. So I always wow. felt somewhat small ish. <laughs> uh, and I'm thin, so I would crouch down a lot yeah. when I was younger, but yeah. I'm jealous. Yeah? Yeah. I'm I'm just as a short guy, I've always wanted to be tall. Oh. Anyway. It's like you. I'm sitting across from you. Usually, we have to angle the microphones so that, like, I can see that person's face. But oh. your face is above <laughs> the mic. It's great. It's great. He has all these funny things. Like, yeah, I don't appreciate being tall because I don't know what the what what it would be what like. It, not, yeah, yeah. It be, not be tall. Yeah, <sighs> high class problem. Um. Uh. So, so just tell me a little bit about how you ended up getting into meditation in the first place. Sure. Uh, so I grew up in a town called Lubbock, Texas, which is uh, rural West Texas, Bible Belt. Uh, there's a town called, um, well, the, the, in the town is a college called Texas Tech University. And my father got a job there as the director of counseling center at Texas Tech University. So five of us kids were raised in Lubbock, Texas. Uh, my father was very Buddhist friendly and kind of a student of Ram Dass's. My mom. I would say Ramdas is is, is J- Ramdas, who was Richard Alpert. I think yes. his name was Jewish kid from Boston who w- went to Harvard, where he got fired for experimenting with drugs, and then went off to India and became Ramdas. The but he was more of the Hindu uh, yes. variety, right? Yes, and wrote "Be Here Now," yeah. which I think my father uh, my father had five kids and went and got his PhD, and I think he had this fantasy. <laughs> of living in, in India and going off and doing the spiritual quest, but he couldn't because he had five kids. Right. So he, um, there was that kind of energy in the house. Mm. And so even though outside of our house, it was very kind of conservative Christian inside our house, we had all the greatest books, uh, the Bhagavad Gita, Ramana Maharshi, Buddhist texts. Like he actually brought a lot of those uh, books in. And I remember when I was a, a teenager, he would leave two books outside of my, uh, outside of my door, either books on sex anatomy, because he wanted me to learn about that, and he would leave uh, meditation books outside of my door. When I was but, up. <laughs> those are, it's an interesting mix. <laughs> Difficult things to talk to yeah, kids yeah, about. Yeah, well, fair um, enough. But because our family didn't go to church, and just about everybody did, I had a lot of confusion about what spirituality was and what religion was, and I remember kids telling me I'm going to hell, and why don't we go to church? And so the whole idea of what it means to be spiritual was kind of thrust onto me at a young age because I wanted to defend myself. I wanted to think like highly of my family. 
And when I was about 14, uh, my parents divorced. And it was very sudden. I didn't know they were having difficulty. I didn't really know what was going on. But um, we were raised by my father from, from 14 on. And my mom was having something of a midlife crisis, mental breakdown. She just needed to be away. She had raised five kids. She, she had reached her maximum. So all of a sudden, my mom had left. And it was shocking. And I remember feeling this just deep grief and this deep pain in my heart and not knowing what to do with it. And I remember just crying you know, to sleep at night and asking, like, how do I live in a life where such change can happen without me even knowing that it was going to happen? Like, one day your mom's there, one day she's gone. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you find happiness? Ten, speaking of 10% happier, how do you find happiness yeah. in that world yeah. of change? And it was the first time I had actually experienced that at that such a dramatic level. Like, wow, I can't really depend on anything. Yeah, there's no ground beneath your feet. no. And at first it was very depressing. So I just spent hours in my room. I, I didn't, I just kind of, I stopped playing sports. I isolated from friends. I didn't know what to do. Like I played a lot of basketball. I still played some soccer, but like it no longer got me joy to score a point in a game because mm-hmm. I'm like, I have this pain in my heart and this like suffering. And so I found some uh, Buddhist talks uh, by people like, you know, people like Jack Hornfield and um, who else? Ramdas was around then. Uh, Stephen Levine was a Buddhist teacher back then, and they actually spoke to pain and suffering. And I remember how relieving that was, that there was actually a name for what I felt, that they they talked about that. And they also talked about the ability to relate to pain and suffering with uh, compassion, which is something I'd never heard growing up in Texas. Like, we didn't have compassion class. So <laughs> compassion was not a word that was very popular. And so all of a sudden, I was drawn to meditation because there was a sense of like, there's a way to work with pain and suffering. But how'd that go? You're a high school kid in Lubbock, Texas, who all of a sudden into meditation. Uh, how'd that go down in your social set? Uh, nobody knew. Okay. So it was a small house, five kids. And so my dad, my parents' back bathroom was the only place that was generally quiet. So I used to go into uh, my parents' back bathroom and uh, sometimes I'd light a candle and often I would just listen to a tape. I don't, I, was, I started meditating after a while, but I just felt something in the voice. I remember mm. hearing these teachers' voices and there was something soothing about their voices. I was like, oh, things are okay. Like, I don't have to fight this. Like, this is, this is natural and I can make it through. But there was something about even just the voice of these people. And I remember my dad would give me psychological tapes, which I know have great benefit. But they were speaking from a different place and I couldn't resonate. They didn't heal me in that way. But there was something about the voices of these teachers that really started to change my system such that I could begin to open and not feel the level of pain and discomfort I was feeling. Or, I mean, I guess to feel it fully and so therefore not to be um, so driven blindly yeah. by it, right? Yeah. That's the thing. Although at the time it was more, it was more like, like I was, I was looking for some soothing yeah, I and guess their you, voice had a soothingness. Yeah. Later I was like, okay, I need to feel it more. But at the time I'm just I think there was a soothing element to their huh. words. Like a Buddhist Mr. Rogers. <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, out of curiosity, did you ever reconcile with your mom? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and I totally understand what was going on now, even though at the time as a 14-year-old kid, you just I just knew my emotional reaction to that situation. Um, and my mom later now came back into my life and the rest of our kids' lives. So she's... Uh, She's this very vivacious 77, 78 year old who just was teaching yoga, like 10, 15 classes a week of yoga until just very recently. Wow. And now she lives in Santa Cruz, where I live. Interesting. Um, so you're, she's very much in your life. 
Uh, she's very much in my life, yeah. I wouldn't say we're like the closest. <laughs> like I don't see her all the time, uh, okay, but we're, okay. she, we're, we've reconciled and uh, we have family um, gatherings. So I have four brothers and sisters and three of them live in Santa Cruz with my dad. And so once a month or once every few months, we have a family circle where everybody comes together and shares what's going on in our life, shares struggles, joys. Uh, and so there's a, we have a very uh, tight knit family in that way. Nice. So how did you go from a kid who, you know, started to get into meditation for some pretty legit reasons to, to you went on to become a, a, a real student and, mm-hmm. uh, and teacher of, of, of Buddhist meditation? Um, well, as I got older, I just, I wanted to figure out what to do for, for a living. <laughs> I saw very few options in terms of uh, what my friends were doing. They're going to business school and going to get jobs in the oil business or banking or whatever. And Where did you go to college? Uh, I went one year at Texas Tech and then ended up graduating from UCSC in mm-hmm. politics. But my, my approach to college was if there was nothing more exciting to do, go to college. Yeah. So I would yeah, go yeah. for a year and then like I joined an environmental walk across the US for six months. And so I left college. And I came back for like a year and then I joined the rest of the walk in Europe and Asia. We walked for about, see how I walked across Japan with a group. I walked across Pakistan with the, with the same group. And then I'd go back and go to college for a year and then I'd do something else. Uh, and I was hitchhiking a lot and traveling a lot. So I eventually graduated from college, but it was more just like I would just get some student loans to live. And so college was a way to to keep myself funded. So you graduate like at age thirty five or something? Uh, like Twenty eight. Okay. Wow. Okay. All right. Yeah. So it really took you. You you, <laughs> you, were, you were on the extended plan. Well, see, also because my father went to got his PhD and was so academia focused, I think I'm. I think we live out the fantasies in some ways of our parents. So that was missing in our. He always longed to go to Asia and go to the um, ashrams and right. meditation retreats. I think a part of me felt that growing up and mm. kind of knew that that was part of my destiny. So I spent a lot of time in Asia, oh, not a lot of time in Asia, but about a year in Asia and going to all the different retreat centers in Thailand and other places. This is before graduating? Uh, yeah. So you were, at this point, getting pretty serious about your meditation yeah. practice. Yeah, I remember I was trying to get a, a permission to go into Burma, which at the time was very difficult to study with Upandita and... Um, it took me like two months, and I never got the quote meditation visa. <laughs> Upendita, just everyone knows, yeah. he's a famous meditation teacher, teacher of people like Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg, and uh, Burmese master. At the time, yeah, it was like where you go if you want to get the full experience yeah. of yeah. Uh, of meditation. Um, so I I journeyed in that way, but I also really loved walking. I loved the adventure of just being out on the road with nothing or very little. And just surviving day to day with the elements. Like, actually, that was a big. Wow, that sounds horrible to me. <laughs> There's an excitement, though, in it. There's like a vibrancy. There's like a um, an unknown. And uh, there's something about just being out with nothing to, I mean, I had a backpack with like a change of clothes and a sleeping bag. That's the way I feel when I turn on the television. I don't know what's going to be on. <laughs> what's on the next channel? <laughs> I think actually that's there is a part of our brain that just loves newness. Yes, of course, and, and novelty for sure. Continues to do it. Um, but when I was younger and raised in West Texas, where it's just all flatlands, like I just longed to be out. And so when I was a kid, I used to write uh, scribble this guy in my notebook, and he was a guy walking down the street wearing his backpack, and I would just scribble him like in history class. And I told him, I remember telling my father, it's like fifteen or sixteen, that I'm going to walk to California. 
And he's, he's like really concerned. And he's like, no, no, no. He gave me all the reasons not to do it. Um, but there was this archetype that I felt like I wanted to live out, which is like, and I remember when I was scribbling this guy on my notebook in high school, um, I wanted to write a book called The Cage People. And The Cage People are the people who drove in cars. Mm. So there was this archetype that wanted to come through me to break out of just the traditional system around me, whether it's religion or how you get work or um, how you live. And so I feel like a lot of my early 20s was basically just like pushing edges and living how simply can we live. So when we were in Japan, we walked from uh, Tokyo to Hiroshima and we were supposed to walk it with these uh, Buddhist monks who do it every year. And um, we had a long story, but we got kicked off uh, the, the group with the monks. What'd you do to p- piss off the monks? <laughs> they had a very uh, traditional way of walking. So when you walk there, you um, beat drums and you pray and you chant. Yeah. And we were like seven hippies from California. We don't do that. We we just walk and talk and we may meander one way and we'll find each other in the next town. And uh, our two groups just had very different ways of I walking. Yeah. Uh, it sounds ridiculous. Literally but. marching to the beat of different drummers. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but anyway, so we dumpster dived for um, three months, yeah, across wow. Japan. It was hardcore. Yeah, but it sound the first two weeks was pretty hard. Um, because you just like, we were like finding potatoes and having to find a way to cook potato. Like we were just like, I remember dumpstering McDonald's. It's just like, it was awful. Um, but then we figured it out on how you figure it out in case anybody's in Japan. Dumpster diving. Yes. Yeah. You can go behind their circle K's and their seven elevens and there's like these convenience stores and they have prepared sushi and prepared meals. And then when the date expires, they put them all out back and, but they're already packaged and, and everything. And so you just have to go about back in the morning and find the trash can with the heaviest that feels the heaviest. And if you open it, generally you can have um, sushi and you can know exactly when it expired. It usually just expired the day before. So I mean, it's, sounds risky. That's fine. <laughs> I was in my 20s. Okay. <laughs> but that gives you a little bit of my mental, our mentality back then was like the world is screwed up going the wrong direction yeah. we are going to like do the very opposite of what everybody else does and we're going to like live counter to american mainstream culture so my if you add to me, my theme of my 20s that was that well it could be interesting just to cast forward in your narrative and i, I don't want to get i just just to foreshadow a little bit because you know you were like avowedly a huge weirdo in your 20s right that's my term not yours but uh, and i mean i say it affectionately um you know trying to be cutting against the grain as it were but as we'll get to in this discussion like for some people in the buddhist world you are now the embodiment of the man who they <laughs> who they who people protest against or whatever yeah, so yeah, yeah. it's going to be very interesting yeah. to come to full circle yeah. with that yeah. in a second but but let's just stay with your chronology now for a second so you, after uh, or because of or despite uh, the dumpster diving phase and the walking and all that stuff you're looking around for at some point a job um, and that's when you became decided to study as a teacher is that Mike do I have um, that right so I did this well I first did this book called meetings with mentors and I went around often hitchhiking to teachers that I knew to, and authors to talk to them about their lives. So I interviewed Ram Dass and Jack Hornfield and um, different people like that because I was trying to find my way and I figured they looked like they had some kind of sense of their way. And uh, back in those times, you didn't do podcasts. You did books of interviews. People actually bought those and paid for those then. And so I traveled around and interviewed a lot of different people, which is really um awesome because what I was looking for wasn't just their theories. I was looking for their stories, you know, like, how did you find your way? How did you navigate this terrain? 
Um, but yeah, once things kind of settled, I began to look at like, what is it that I really want to do? And one of the things I wanted to do was to uh, teach meditation to teenagers because that's how it was introduced to me. And it just seems like a, a nonsensical um, thing to do. So Spirit Rock at the time, Meditation Center on the, on the West Coast that uh, Jack Hornfield and others started, was just uh, beginning their teen program. So um, I got in there right in the beginning, and so we'd start offering meditation programs for their teenagers. Um, I don't know what year that was. It was many years ago. <laughs> um, and so I did that for a while, and then I just realized it wasn't... The teenagers who were coming were somewhat interested, but I felt like I really wanted to reach kids who were suffering more than the kids who were coming. And I'm sure they were suffering too, but there wasn't there was some way that I was drawn to meet with kids in a in a more challenging environment. So that's when I got this idea to go into juvenile halls and start programs with kids in juvenile facilities and youth prisons. And I remember I think I was talking to John Cabazin or somebody about it and um and somebody asked me, it's like, well, what are they generally doing? Because I didn't know, I didn't have a lot of meditation. I wasn't trained as a teacher then or anything. And a friend said, uh, uh, well, what are they generally doing in the evening? So I'm like, well, they're generally watching movies and often violent movies. The kids are just kind of sitting around. He's like, well, if your meditation instructions are slightly better than that, you're probably moving <laughs> in the right direction. <laughs> so I was like, okay, I can probably create a setting that's slightly better yeah. than the movies that they're watching. And so I started from that and not knowing really anything. It must have been terrifying to go into that environment, try to introduce this, you know, practice to kids who probably have pretty good reason to have a chip on their shoulder. Yeah. And who have a lot of reason to make fun of it and want to be cool and are uncomfortable closing their eyes for fear of of, um, getting hit or something. Yeah. How'd you soldier through that? Uh, I started it, um, the very first classes I taught, I taught with this guy, Noah Levine. Oh, sure. Dharma met. punks. Yeah. Right? yeah. So Noah and I taught our very first classes at uh, Juvenile Hall together, and he had been in Juvenile Hall. And uh, there was this other guy who'd been in Juvenile Hall, and that helped because they had some of the languaging and some of the wording. But just like walking across Pakistan, or, I love I love walking into areas <laughs> that I know nothing about, and you just have to figure it out. It's like and, the uh, social intellectual version of dumpster diving. Yeah. It was like, can you go in? And I always felt like if this works, it should work to every population, right? That's right. If whatever we're doing, if it doesn't work for everybody, then it doesn't. What we're doing is we're just deluding ourselves. Amen. Absolutely. the languaging has to change. The approach has to change. Um, I remember not even calling it meditation. We just call it, let's just tune in. Or let's, um, I remember asking the kids once, I was like, well, what are you most interested in? I was trying to find a way to connect them. And the kids are like, power. We want power. I'm like, great, let's talk about power. How, how can We're going to do a power practice now. And how this helps you with power is you now get to choose how you act in any given moment versus getting played by other people who want you to act in a certain way. Ooh, that's good. Because if I'm not mindful and I want to get you upset and angry, I can say just the right words to, get, to play you like a guitar. So you can, you can yell at me or scream at me or try and get a fight with me. So who's in control in that situation? kids be like you're in control like right so do you want to be in control in those situations cool here's a practice so when you're aware of your thoughts when you're aware of emotions you get to choose how you respond you might still punch the guy back i'm not saying not to but i'm just saying you get to choose your response which is the greatest power you can ever have that a really smart response man seriously but so that connects to them if i'm like talking about compassion and love and kindness like for that crowd that's they'll be interested in that but it has to go through their interests yeah so um I figured, you know, you just show up and the kids teach you. And I remember one time teaching with Will Cabot Zen and um, 
So uh, John had sent me Will. Will was kind of doing retreats and stuff. So, so did you just let me say, sure. John Kabat-Zinn is the, uh, you could argue, the godfather of modern mindfulness uh, mm-hmm. um, and uh, eminent teacher, writer, um, dude. And his son is Will, who was also now a great teacher. Mm-hmm. And so you've worked yeah. with both of these gentlemen. Yeah, so uh, so John was very supportive of this because I think he really liked the idea that it was reaching different populations. Um, so the fact that there was some young, strange tall guy from Texas wanting to go into juvenile halls. He's like, he's, he's very supportive from the beginning. And, um, so when Will would do a retreat and then he'd come back and live for three or four months or so, he would come and work with us at lineage project. That was the name of the organization. And I remember sitting in a class with Will once and, um, these are like 20, almost like in New York city juvenile halls, which is where I taught most, it's 98.5% kids of color. So they're almost always kids of color. Um, occasionally it's a white kid, but it's, it's really rare. And so we're all sitting around and, uh, I remember this guy talking about what was going on in his life and Will's just sitting there listening to him and the guy gets uncomfortable. This kid, he's probably like 16. He's like, why are you looking at me like that? Will's like, what do you mean? He's like, why are you looking at me like that? And Will's like, dude, I'm just looking at you. And the kid paused and he said, I don't think anyone's ever looked at me before. Actually listened to me before. It was so uncomfortable for him. Wow. And then he realized Will was offering him a presence and a a quality of attention that was making him uncomfortable because he had never felt that. And I think there's a hunger in all of us for that level of attention. Thich Nhat Hanh says the greatest gift we can give another person is our presence. And I feel like anybody working with kids who has kids or knows kids, there's a quality of, of, presence that I think beyond whatever meditation practice we do or don't do, but when they feel that, they some part of them rises up and it's drawn to it. I remember this other time where um, I was leading this uh, class in Brooklyn, Juvenile Hall, and uh, it was, um, you could come or go, it wasn't a mandatory class, and there was this kid who would come every week, like right on, but when we would do the meditation, I'd look around and he would be just be like, not paying attention and not really doing the meditation, but he wasn't being disruptive. He just wasn't doing the practice. And during yoga too, he'd just be like barely going through the motions. But at the end of every class, he'd always come up and give me a hug. But I was like weirded by this kid. Cause I'm like, why don't you, why do you come to this like voluntary class? And you like, don't do the meditation. You don't do the yoga, um, but you do the hug. <laughs> and then I realized, I was like, what's your problem? And I realized he had no problem. I had the problem. My problem was that he should come to the class to get to do meditation yoga. His, what he was really coming to class was for that <laughs> hug he got every week. <laughs> and that's what he, that's what mattered to him. And so I was like, Soren, get over yourself. Just give him the greatest, most beautiful, like most grounded hug you can every week and just like love him up and let him gradually do the other stuff as he can. I realized like what I thought I was there teaching sometimes was very different than what they were getting out of it. And just like when I was a kid, it was the tone of the voice of the teacher Mm. that actually softened me Mm -hmm. that sometimes the people we're working with are impacted in ways that we don't even know. And that the real way to do it is, you know, Sharon Salzberg and others will tell you, it's just the loving kindness that we bring in any given moment. Um, I found working with kids is like, that's what they tune into. Like they want to know, like, are you here with an agenda? Are you trying to fix me? Are you trying to control me? Do you think I'm bad? But when, if I do your shit, I'll be good. Right. Because if you are, we are going to attack you and we're going to come strong and furious. And they did and they would. <laughs> you and know, they have to relax and just be like, all right, you're right. 
You know, that reminds me of, I mean, I think you're spot on. Just everything you said was just awesome. But uh, we have this amazing, magical nanny. Uh, mm. My wife and I both work, and so we have a nanny. And, and uh, Eleanor uh, is her name. She's phenomenal. And, and uh, yeah, parents are always coming up to us and saying, even people who live in our building who aren't parents who just see her with our kids are just like, your nanny is amazing. Mm. And, uh, and all the other kids and my son's little pre pre preschool mm. class um are are constantly hanging out with our, our, our nanny <laughs> and one night bianca my wife was asking her about it and she said the simple thing she said kids know where the love is mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that that's it that's beautiful that says it that says it. she's just a deep reservoir yeah. of beneficence mm-hmm. and and little human animals get that <laughs> they do and they're tuned to that level um, one of the things I also learned from kids in Juvenile Hall was uh, the importance to just make fun of yourself. And, yeah, well, and, <laughs> and uh, which was yes, easy yes. as a tall, skinny white guy <laughs> from Texas when they're all not that. But I, I remember this one time I was trying to get a group to um, focus, and I I said, "All right, guys." I was the first class at this unit, and I said, "All right, guys, um, listen. I need everybody's attention because this could be dangerous. And if you only say the word dangerous, <laughs> like you yeah, get their attention. Of course, yes. Like I need everybody right now to grab a hold of their chair. Can you do, take your right hand and just grab a hold of your chair? All right. Does everyone have a grab? Is everyone grabbing their chair in this moment? I had to make sure. Like, all right. And they're like, yeah, we got our chair. I was like, because we're going to do this meditation thing. And I need to make sure that you know how to grab your chair. Because occasionally what happens when you do this meditation is people begin to levitate off their chairs and they go so high they hit their head on the ceiling and they fall down they can hurt themselves. And I'm looking around and everyone doesn't know what, like, is this guy full of shit? Is he? What is it? So everybody's like looking at me like I'm serious because why would I be joking? So it's like, all right. So they're like, all right, this. I was like, all right, so let's do the meditation, right? But I just need to know if you start to lift up off the this one kid says, I am not doing this. And then I could like, I was like, man, I'm just teasing you. I'm playing with you. Nobody meditates or nobody levitates when they do this. But all of a sudden it got us in the best space right, right. to meditate because mm-hmm. everybody it made fun of. It was loose. It was like, um, and I definitely think in meditation circles, <laughs> we can be a little too serious. And if we're trying to reach other populations, they need to know that we can make fun of ourselves, as you have shown many times, that it actually softens and makes Absolutely. you human. And then they can receive whatever medicine that you're rece- giving across. That's my central, has been my central critique of the mindfulness world. Is this, the earnestness, I think, gets is a barrier for, yeah. for a lot of folks. But so, so the lineage project that you've been talking about it mm-hmm. continues to exist and yeah. do phenomenal work. You, however, kind of went off in an interesting direction, which will bring us to yeah. kind of the meat of this interview. W- w- tell us what happened there. I went from working with the very poorest, most destitute population uh, in the U.S. to working with the most privileged mm-hmm. <laughs> population in the U.S. Um, and... It's kind of strange how that happened. So I was uh, living in New Mexico. I gotten divorced. I'd lost my job. I just didn't know what to do. Lost your job at the Lineage Project? Or? No. So I left the Lineage Project and moved to New Mexico. Okay. Uh, my wife and I at the time. And uh, What was your job there? Uh, I was working for Richard Gere's Foundation oh, okay. in New York. Okay. We were working on a project. Well, uh-huh. the project kind of ended. I got you. Got but you, I was going you. back and forth to New York. Uh-huh. So you were you lost your wife and your job and you were bummed. I was bummed. I was, yeah. and I'm in living in a town of like 700 people. <laughs> yeah, back in kind of like a cousin of Lubbock in a way. Yeah, and just like, what am I going to do? Yeah, I had no idea. I'd know. I'd lost. Like, I had connections in California, but I hadn't lived there for a while. I had connections in New York, but I wasn't really there. And I'm just in this like place. So I, uh, my partner and I divorce, and I'm living in this trailer, this like 
two bedroom trailer mm. in uh, northern New Mexico. And all of a sudden, I'm like, you know, what am I doing with my life? And my, I want, I needed to stay there because my son was four and his mom was there. And so I couldn't really leave, but I had to just figure out what I would do. So uh, I didn't have much money. And so I was $500 a month rent. I remember for the, for the, uh, the um, place that I was renting. And so I just was like, I, I knew I had this interest in spirituality and mindfulness and meditation, and that was super strong. And then I started getting super interested in technology and these social networks and how you could communicate with anybody across the world. So we, what year was this just to ground us? Or roughly? Let's see, that was, so my son is now 14, so 10 years ago. Okay, all right. So he was four at the time. And um, so for about a year, I just lived off my credit card. I figured I'll figure this out later. I don't, I'm not, I don't have huge expenses <laughs> you know, uh, living out here, so I grew a lot of my own food. And I uh, lived off my credit card for the most part. And I remember listening to a lot of Eckhart Tolle. One of the things Eckhart okay, let said. let me just say, again, oh, sure. he's a best-selling self-help guru. I mock him a little bit in uh-huh. my book, but also have to admit that he, even though I have my criticisms of him, kind of woke me up to the central fact that we all have a voice mm-hmm. in our heads. And that is really his argument in his yeah. books, The Power of Now and uh, A New Earth. Mm-hmm. He's a big favorite of Oprah. And anyway, that's Eckhart Tolle is what... Without Eckhart Tolle, I wouldn't be sitting here. I wouldn't have written my book. Right. I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you, wow. even though at times I, I, I don't know whether he's <laughs> out of his mind or not. Anyway, so I would probably not be sitting here with you, too. <laughs> he's a, he's, yeah, he's like from a different planet. Yes. And um, I, a friend who knows him well described him as a hole in the universe. Like somehow he's come through and it's hard to always know exactly um, how much I just, Anyways, there's parts of me him I totally get, and parts I, I, I I'm not getting. But uh, the parts I get, I love. And he had said um, something. He said, "Don't ask what you want to do in the world. Ask what the world wants to do through you." It's like a twist on JFK. Like Zen, yeah, you know, the Zen JFK. Yeah, and that be present, be fully present in this moment. I'm, I'm, I'm. These aren't his exact words. That was the exact words. These aren't his exact words. But this is my trans- translation was be fully present and okay with this moment and then let what life wants to do through you to do through it you so when Eckhart talks he, ta- he talks about your you have your uh, primary focus and your secondary focus so the primary focus is always just right here right now because mm-hmm. it's the only moment we have and every the past is a fantasy and or the the future is a fantasy and the past is just a memory but all we have is this moment so am I fully awake in this moment It's always like your primary focus, but there's also like a secondary focus, which is what does the world want to do through me? What's the action that's asking, but the action that asking isn't to make better the present moment (laughs) because you can never make better the present. The moment that's the, 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 the secondary is like what wants to come through me as an action in the world to express this presence and to express what my kind of karmic unfolding is. And so for me at the time, it's like, oh, can I practice really being fully present and okay with the fact that this is my life right now? I'm isolated. I'm living in this little town. I'm living in this trailer. I don't have much money. Like, can I be fully present with that experience and at the same time listen to what wants to come through? And so I did that for about a year, um, just going for walks, sitting a lot, listening. And I was definitely frustrating at times because like, I want to know what it is I'm supposed to do. And then I remember I just got this hit. It was almost like walking. It's like, you know, when you get a breeze, you're walking, all of a sudden you feel a breeze kind of like move mm-hmm. over you. Of like, what if 
the mindfulness wisdom world and the tech world came together. Um, and I was like, yes, that's what I'm supposed to do. Like, cause the technology community is definitely not going to solve our world's problems on their own. And I also don't think the mindfulness wisdom and compassion community is going to really solve things on their own either, because there's an intelligence that the tech community has that these people don't. There's, there's a need these people have that these people don't. And so what if you actually brought those two together to harness the best of the external technologies and the best of the internal technologies and what might emerge through that coming together? So that was a vision, and I didn't know really anybody in Silicon Valley. I remember I had a friend of a friend who knew somebody who knew somebody who worked at Google, and so there was like this little line of connection there. And that's how I started Wisdom 2.0. I just realized like I wanted to facilitate this conversation in our culture, and I wanted to bring people together to look at like how do we live these qualities in this day and age with social media and smartphones and everything, knowing that the truths that the Buddha talked about or the truths that Lao Tzu talked about are just as relevant and accessible today. It's not as if those things left, you know, nature is still here and the same life lessons are still here. So how do we do that and live that within a modern time of all these gadgets and all these things? And if we can't do that, then we're screwed. And that as the external technologies continue to develop and grow and we'll have VR and all kinds of crazy, even more crazy stuff coming, Uh, I think it's just begun. How do we make sure that the internal technologies of love and compassion and wisdom grow alongside that so that we have a community and a group of children who not only know how to code and how to post things on Instagram, but they also know how to sit across from one another and have a conversation. And if we lose that capacity as a culture, um, it's not the world that I want our kids to grow up in. You know, I want a world that kids or grew up in where compassion is just as valuable, if not more valuable than the ability to code an, an app or, or understand how technology is used. So, so, so how long has Wisdom 2.0 been around now? This will be our eighth year. Okay, so it's really grown into a juggernaut. I mean, it's a big, um, the, you have the sort of crown jewel gathering every mm-hmm. February in San Francisco. You have a version in New York and you have lots of smaller events. I know one in Hawaii, you mm-hmm. do some uh, ret- invite-only retreats. Um, but it is, uh, and I, I can't remember the exact words I've heard used to describe it, but it is kind of like really the the TED of mindfulness, the mm-hmm. CES of mindfulness, the sort of the gathering for the mindfulness world. Um uh, so how would you describe it? That's the way I've heard it described. How would you describe it? So it's interesting. When um, when I was starting Wisdom 2.0, a friend of mine who's a great marketer, and he uh, he approached me and he said, okay, Soren, let's think this through. Now, you have this conference idea. Now, who's your target population? Do you want to do it? Do you want to target entrepreneurs? Do you want to target HR executives? Do you want to target like uh, mindfulness people? Like, Who do you want to target? And I said, I want to target anybody interested in living with wisdom, mindfulness, compassion in the in the current dig- digital age. He's like, sorry, that makes no sense because where would you find them? Yeah. He's like, we need a smaller target. But my target has always been like, if you're interested in living these qualities within a modern technological rich time, this is where you come. And where you come, meet other people, where you come listen to what's happening, what's the latest research, uh, how are spiritual teachings being integrated, so we get a lot of people from the tech community there who are working at Apple or Facebook or Google and they love their work, but they also feel like something's missing. Like, I don't want to just create gadgets. Like I want a heart in my work and I want connection. And so we get a lot of those people. We got a lot of people from the mindfulness community. We get a lot of people from the health and wellness community. So I would say 
Um, it, un, so TED is very interesting because what TED does is they take like 18 minute talks. I think it's 18 minutes and they, everybody has to follow that same yeah. suit. And their vision is if everything goes exactly as planned, we did a great job. Mm. <laughs> my, my, my vision is that we did everything exactly as planned. We didn't do our job because I'm interested in what shows up when we all come together and like, what are the topics and the issues that we need to bring forth as this community gathers? So there's definitely scheduled talks and, and things, but there's also interviews and other ways that I feel like when we all are live together in person, there's a quality of presence and there's a quality of connection and the things are said that you might not ever say. So I feel like this community needs a, an annual gathering and Wisdom 2.0 tries to provide that space so that if you're interested in this and you're wanting to learn more, there's a place for you. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. Just to give people a sense of how big a deal this thing has become, can you just list some of the most famous people who've spoken over the last eight years at, at, at your... It's it very... So, like, last year we had everyone from Russell Simmons to um, the head coach of the Seattle Seahawks, Pete Carroll, um, the CEO of uh, LinkedIn, uh, Jeff Weiner. We have had the founders of Facebook and Twitter and eBay and um, Mark Bertolini is the CEO of Aetna, uh, Bill Ford, who's a chairman of Ford Motor Company. So it's, like, a lot of different business types along with our friend Eckhart Tolle and Jack Hornfield and John Cabot Zen has come now. This will be his eighth year in a row. I think he's never missed. And so it's this kind of odd combination. So if you ask me, how do these all these people connect? What, what's the founder of Facebook and the founder of Twitter have to do with uh, John Cabot Zen or, or um, Byron Katie? And it's, they actually seek the same world. They might have slightly different visions about how to get there, but that they seek the same world. And that world has technology as a part of it, but mindfulness is a huge part of it as well. And the tech leaders that I know of, they've had huge success on the external level. And as we know, that only gets you so far. (laughs) Um, And then they start inquiring, like, why do I still have this sense of lack in my life, even though our company just went public and I just, my personal wealth just increased 100x I still feel this lack in my life and also I see the way my technology that I created is being used and it's not how I envisioned it being used 
And I want to support a world that has mindfulness as a component of it. And I also want to understand my own inner journey, because if I don't understand that, yeah, I can get more planes and more houses and more whatever, but I'm still unsatisfied. And so there's a community of people there who are waking up to that fact and who are like, wow, where do we go have these conversations about our own feeling of lack and unworthiness and, and hollowness? And also how we can create a world where the technologies we're creating are actually used for benefit, where Twitter is actually used to connect people, not just to like provide mind candy of distraction. Like I want to support my use, the, the tools that I created, I want to support the wise use of those. So that's kind of how they end up. Do As you look around the world today, do you think your stated goal of creating a world where uh, wisdom could be amplified by these powerful tools of technology. Do you think you've moved the needle on that goal? <laughs> I think we've moved the conversation on that goal. I definitely think there's a conversation now that's, uh, that all of us have participated in, where whether it's in schools or businesses or politics or society, where mindfulness is a topic that will be that's um, more open to being in under discussion. I think the practice of mindfulness in our culture in some ways has gotten harder and harder and harder because we have these noise making devices that are with us all the time, alerting us to something or another, whether it's a text message or a Facebook post or an email. And that presents its own challenges. And I feel like we're in a time where we've joined this huge experiment on our brains and on our attention, not really knowing what the results will be. Um, so I do feel like um the whole topic of mindfulness, wisdom, and compassion has like entered the world in a way I didn't think. If five years ago, if you had asked me, would this be as welcomed? I would, I would have said no. It's going to take much longer. And I, so I do feel like something has happened. And at the same time, when I look around the subway, which I was on yesterday, or look or walk the streets of New York, um, the digital world is still is taking over in a really big way, and that's not bad. It just presents its own challenges. You said walking in here that you wanted to talk a little bit about the way you saw technology and mindfulness or lack thereof play out in the recent election and what it might mean going forward in a, yeah. as we head into, or as we post this, we may now actually be in the first of four years of Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one of the things that I was interested in, which I was very surprised by the election results when I got them, and I think a lot of people were, whether you voted for Trump or for Clinton, there's there's definitely a surprise. And at first, like something, some somebody messed up, or there's a computer glitch, you know, like a, kind of in denial. Um, and then I realized, like, wow, the world that I thought I had I imagined living in was so different than the world that I actually realized I do live in. And so I uh, voted for Clinton and I couldn't understand initially why all these people would vote for Trump. I'm still learning and understanding, but I feel like there's a way in which the technology community has been like moving so fast forward towards providing like robotics in terms of manufacturing, uh, self-driving cars that are coming. Um, A lot of people have not benefited from the fact that technology has become so pervasive. No, in fact... It's scary. It's a it's challenge. Scary. Those yeah. jobs are going away. Yeah, and the coal jobs are gone. And we we talk about solar panels. We talk about all these other things. But it's like a lot of people are losers in this game. And I think the tech community has lost has lacked a lot of awareness or compassion for those people. It's like we're just going to create all these cool technologies. And sorry if you're left behind. Especially um, as we get into artificial intelligence yeah. and you know 
then we could really see huge swaths of the economy. Yeah. Or just imagine, I mean, oh, self-driving anyway. cars, when they'll, well, they'll be here in two years or five years or 10 years, eventually they're going to take out tons of jobs. Yeah. And so a lot of people are either have lost their job or just fear where this is going. They fear like, I didn't, you know, I don't have computer skills. Where do I fit in this world? So when there becomes a candidate who appears, who says, I'm going to make America great again. I'm going to go back to this greatness that we had and I'll protect you and I'll fight for you. Uh, it becomes super compelling. And I guess what I'm asking right now is I feel like there's a, a coming together that the United States needs to do that neither party can do. Neither party is good at, whether the Republicans win or the Democrats win. There's still this division that people feel about where their true needs are and how they can actually have a genuine, um, be like understood in their pain. And I don't know exactly the right way forward, but I realize like I have a much better understanding of the kind of um, reasons why people would vote for Trump when, when I looked at him from the outside, I'm like, how does he, he has no experience. He, he, he doesn't seem to have the temperament. He says ridiculous things at times. He says demeaning things at times. Um, and so why would people vote for him? And I realize that there is something that he's speaking to them about. And I think he's speaking to them about their concerns and their like worries that this world is going to move ahead and that technology is a part of that and you're going to be left behind. And so I'm going to make sure you're not left behind. And I think the Democrats have done a pretty poor job of really reaching middle America and saying, wow, we're really concerned with your needs. And I think both Sadly, both uh, parties have become disconnected, I think, from that. But Trump, even though he's probably the wealthiest, most elite presidential candidate who's ever, who's ever uh, run, uh, won in part because he presented himself as the average guy, the average Joe. It's interesting yeah. to me speaking to you, because you're speaking from your position on the left, mm -hmm. but in your position as the impresario of Wisdom 2.0, you've taken a lot of heat from your left flank. Mm -hmm. um, uh, as an example, there was a protest on stage at Wisdom, yeah. what, two years ago, I think? Two years ago. So you're in San Francisco, and a bunch of uh, protesters burst onto the yeah. stage, and they're, uh, they're protesting the fact that the tech community, because of the tech community, um, rents are now really high, mm -hmm. and the city is being mm -hmm. gentrified and, and stuff like that. So you're conference which is supposed to be a nice place for for <laughs> you know thoughtful buddhists and contemplatives to talk to uh tech folks about making a better world is actually a flashpoint for some people yeah. not to mention that there's this whole group of people on the and on the sort of orthodox buddhist buddhist side of things who worry yeah. about what yeah. they call mick mindfulness yeah. the yeah. popularization yeah. of this uh of this practice that they slash we, yeah. both of us, yeah. hold dear. Yeah. Um, so I wonder how you yeah. deal being the, 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 what your response is to these critiques mm -hmm. and how you deal with it personally. Great questions. Um, so as, as most protesters go, I had no idea they were going to come and protest. <laughs> so they hadn't reached out to me for a voice or reached out to me. But um, the irony, you were a guy in your 20s was dumpster diving and trying to live against the, the grain and, you know, counterculture and all this stuff. And now, as I said before, you're the dude. Yeah. You're the guy. When I, I, I called Jack Cornfield after it happened. Or it was, no, there's a, ne a very negative article, I think it's in Tricycle. And I remember calling Jack and Jack's like, well, congratulations, Soren, you've arrived. You've made it. When people can pro when people like f organize a protest against you, yeah. like you've made it. And he was partly joking, but there was, 
there is some sense of like, wow, we're big enough now that you, you can actually organize a protest to, um, and, and get publicity based on the event. So the fact that they would choose Wisdom 2.0 to protest is, is, is somewhat um, a sign that uh, it has a larger um, mouthpiece than I thought it did. I still wonder how big a impact it has, but it, it, it has some impact. Um, and so, yes, rents are going up and people want to find a focus for um, that anger and that frustration. And the tech community is a great focus of that because their job, they're paying people. If you were, it's almost like there's this bifurcation happening in our culture where if you work in tech, you get one salary. If you don't work in tech, there's a whole other salary for you unless you're a doctor or a lawyer or certain things. But like the, the difference between incomes is vast and uh, it isn't changing. I understand people's anger and upsetness. Um, I wish they had reached out to, in terms of the protest. I wish they had reached out to me and been like, how do we facilitate a conversation on this? at the conference versus just running up on stage with microphones and screaming and yelling. Um, so I, I didn't appreciate their approach, but I definitely have the same concerns they have in terms of what's going to happen to San Francisco as the rents go up. We're not going to see the same people that people love to have there. And I think that's a real issue. Is right. It's not just tech, but it's just as wealth gets more and more, and I don't think our next president's going to do much about it, but as, as wealth gets more and more concentrated in fewer and fewer hands, what do we do as a culture and where does wisdom and compassion well, a lot of those people in the one percent that the top point oh oh one percent are in the pews at wisdom two they are they are they're either speaking or they're often they come and attend yeah. some people of that elk they don't they just love to be at the conference yeah. and they would love to use their billions in a meaningful way too but they don't know how to do it and i think in a capitalist culture people are very hesitant to just give away their money back into the back into the pot they want to find uh, a meaningful way to do it. But I, I definitely think the way that money is gathered in such huge amounts these days, um, I would love to see much higher taxes on it personally, but there has to be some way of equalizing the playing field because there's a lot of people who are losing out and those people have voted, I think, a candidate that they feel like will stand for them and protect them, whether that actually happens or not, we'll see. Um, but yeah, and then the other side is the people who are more Buddhist oriented and feel like these practices should really not be offered in corporations. If, and if they do, they should come from a Buddhist standpoint. And I often, my response to that often is like, well, I'm not teaching Buddhism. We're teaching awareness, which existed long before Buddhism existed. You know, we're teaching that thing that existed before the Buddha. And I feel like that's true, that there's an awareness. There's definitely huge learning we can take from the Buddhist perspective and Buddhist teachings, but there was an, uh, there's an inherent capacity in the human being to be awake. And that wasn't something that the Buddha just came about in the Buddhist time. This actually existed throughout humanity. And it's that capacity to be awake that we're exploring, that I feel like we're exploring at Wisdom 2.0 because we realize that wakefulness it's essential for a healthy human being, for a healthy family, for a healthy society. And so sometimes I don't even use the word mindfulness just because I feel like it's being used so much. Mm. I'll just say awareness and nobody owns awareness. Yeah, but do, <laughs> do people even know what awareness means? I don't know. I don't really care. We think so. of like drug awareness. Uh, we think of, you know, uh, there's lo- all awareness, sorts of awareness. Presence. Yeah. Eckhart doesn't like the word mindfulness. Eckhart yeah. totally doesn't like the word mindfulness. He says it's a bad translation and that it makes people think, your mind is full. Yeah. So he uses the word presence, which I also love. Um, but I do feel like there is a part of the Buddhist community who feels like 
there's this whole movement happening and they're left out. Mm. And I understand that. But l- I don't know if this is the tricycle uh, article that you were referencing because um, what I'm about to read to you isn't particularly mean. Um, uh, but it was written by my um, friend, uh, Jay Michelson, who's been a guest on, on this uh, podcast before. He's just, just looking at, uh, I just pulled this article mm-hmm. up. It was one of many he wrote ba- after attending your conference back in 2013. He said, uh, Wisdom 2.0 is the conference many Buddhists, including one reviewer from this magazine last year, love to hate. Uh, as I type these words on my netbook, desperately trying not to be a buzzkill, I'm sitting with contradictions, serenaded by an uber California social artist telling us to open our hearts while awaiting a program of millionaires and celebrities, half envying and half loathing the sense that some of the people here are filthy rich. Or maybe my cynicism is just cultural, as my friend Bara Sapir, I don't know who that is, whispered in my ear during the opening serenade, you can take the girl out of New York, but you can't take the New York out of the girl. So... It's just an interesting paragraph I thought I'd get you to riff on if you, if you don't mind. Well, it's an interesting one because uh, I definitely think you can use how to use celebrity and status in a beneficial way. So, um, you know, it used to be that the, the town elders were the people that everybody listened to. Uh, not so much anymore. Who do people listen to? Who do people respect? In some ways, it's the tech leaders that they respect because they could see the way the world was going to move before the rest of us could see. And so for better or worse, people really respect business leaders and technology leaders. Uh, And so for me, it's like, all right, if that's who people are listening to, (laughs) let's get them to talk about mindfulness and wisdom and compassion, because that will then um, have the greatest impact. If I say it, not many people listen to me. John Kabat-Zinn says it, that's great, but that only reaches a certain crowd. But you can get the top business leaders, the top entertainers, whoever also talking about this potentially that infiltrates the society in a way that is really beneficial. Now, the challenge of doing that is when you get people who have kind of the success of the society behind them, it's easy to feel like um, they're, they're disconnected. They don't live normal lives like the rest of us. And I think just as we admire people, we resent them. So just as much as we res- admire the founder of Facebook or whoever, there's another part of us that resents them. And when they fall, we love it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what? Mm-hmm. We love it when they fall. We're like, see, they are human and they, they aren't. And because we want to feel better about ourselves. Mm-hmm. So I definitely think there's an underlying resentment to success in general, worldly success. And that there's a way that you can use it and just propagate the sense that there's people who are better than others and smarter than others and these people are like need to be bowed to and and cuddled and and but I also feel like there's a way to use popularity and success to remind us of the illusion of success <laughs> and to remind us that the present moment is all we have and even if you make billion dollars you still have a mind and a body and a heart and in some ways your problems just increase and that there's a way that we need to come together that doesn't identify ourselves as as solely as are the conditions of our life and if part of the people who are willing to get across that message happen to be from that community, for me, that's just all the more powerful. And if we were looking to have impact, bringing the founders of different tech companies in, they're the people who can have help us support, help us have that impact. And so it is somewhat risky and it can become like, oh, look at these billionaires with their problems getting to sleep at night or look at these billionaires with these problems not knowing what to do with their life, whatever. Um, I also feel like there's a power there that can be harnessed. And so we've, I've committed to trying to navigate that terrain. And so n- notwithstanding, 
I mean, a lot of people love Wisdom 21. I don't mm-hmm. mean to just focus on the critics. I mean, you've got it's sold out every year. So, I mean, the, the, I'm only asking it just because it's good, to, it's fun to talk to you yeah. about. But notwithstanding the criticism, to the extent that there is criticism of Wisdom, you don't seem in any way um, to be thrown off the scent. You're still excited I mean, about doing this. Yeah, we all make our bets. Yeah, you know, you're at the table, you make your bet. I'm making a bet that we need each of these subgroups in order to create something that actually has impact in the culture. And I'm making a bet that we need the business leaders, we need the technical leaders, we need the wisdom teachers, we need the social activists. Like, we need a space where their voices are all heard and where mindfulness isn't owned by any of them. And what do you envision it leading to? That's a great question. So the question that guides my life is like, how do you create a wisdom-based culture? That's the question that guides my life. And if somebody asks me, like, I don't know exactly what the answer is. I know what it doesn't look like. You know, I know what it doesn't look like. But how do we create that? There would be social emotional learning in every school. There would be compassion training in every every kid's school. Corporations would focus not on quarterly profits, but on the quality of connections and the and the, the impact they're having on the world. Um, old people would be taken care of. Um, there would be an income. I, I, everyone would get a basic income. So that there would be. Um, a sense of like, listen, if they're hurting, we're also hurting. And how do we create a tax system that benefits not only the top, but the bottom? So there's all these different aspects, but it has to come from an internal sense of like wanting to help. It, it can't come from, it, it just, it, so there's an inner process that we each have to go through to understand our own suffering, our own pain. And I think that then opens us up to feel another's suffering another's pain it's not just going to come because we try and convince somebody of our position so i don't know dan to really answer the question well i just know that like that's what inspires me and draws me it's like what is it to create a wisdom-based culture where these things are not coming because they're a democrat or republican but we're actually seeing our humanity and we're developing policies and practices based on a sense of connectedness and humanity I think if you look at the culture today, it's really hard to argue that we're the, anywhere close to close to there yet. Mm-hmm. So, where if people want to learn more about Wisdom 2.0 and what you're up to, and where where can they go? And Wisdom 2 Summit dot com or Wisdom the Number Two Conference dot com, or just Google Wisdom 2.0, you can see who's there. And it's not all. I just should say it's not like this year. We actually have less tech leaders. Some years we have a lot, and some years we don't. Um, but there's a lot of different voices of people who come, like Monica Lewinsky is coming this year, talking about shame and healing and her process of what it means to go through like a public humiliation unlike we had ever mm. seen. And what is it like to heal from that and how technology can be used to either shame or support. Um, so it's 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 both inclusive of tech, but it's not solely tech. And uh, you're speaking this year, John speaking, Jack Kellernfield speaking. So it's also a place that if you if you've never heard John speak, you get to actually hear John, Jack, share a lot of these people all in one place together. And they also get to learn from each other and, and participate. Um, and it's really for anybody who cares about how we create a culture where compassion is, is just as prevalent as um, computers and where our iPhones are still used, but they're used in a way that's thoughtful and mindful. And I do feel really strongly that we're entering an age where it used to be like, there was contemplative time built into a day. So when my, when I was a kid growing up and my dad came home at five, five thirty, he, he never, there was no email. <laughs> there was no self. He was pretty present with us. You know, there wasn't much going. It was a contemplative based time. We'd watch TV together or something, but it, it had a contemplative feel to it. Mm-hmm. Today, 
you get no contemplative time unless you really thoughtfully manage to, or most people, I should say, create a container for that contemplative time. So we're like the first generation where contemplation is like not built into the system. And so going forward, if we don't find a way to build contemplation and find a way to build mindfulness and thoughtfulness, and, and at the same time, our power increases because we have more technology that can do more things, uh, that's a very dangerous combination. Well said. Thank you very much for doing this. Thanks, Dan. Always great to see you. Likewise. Okay, there's another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you liked it, please make sure to uh, subscribe, rate us. And uh, if you want to suggest topics we should cover or guests uh, we should bring in, hit me up on Twitter at Dan B. Harris. I also want to thank heartily the people who produce this podcast and really do pretty much all the work. Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, Sarah Amos, Andrew Kalb, Steve Jones, and the head of ABC News Digital, Dan Silver. Uh, I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost, but now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.